This is Fortress on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, and Giovanni. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill, a podcast about U.S. foreign policy, anti-imperialism, skepticism, and the American way of war. I'm Henry. Thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us today. With me is uh, Giovanni. Giovanni, how you doing, man? I'm doing. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Uh, we got a great guest coming up, and um, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Me too. So we are here today to talk with uh, Manisha Rios about her uh, panel at the Seventh uh, Symposium on Peace and the Abolition of Foreign Military Bases. I think I got the title right there. Uh, Manisha, how are how are you today? I'm great. I'm excited to be here and really excited to talk about this stuff with y'all. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Monisha is a uh, Puerto Rican slash Yakense psychologist, social worker, and anti-imperialist veteran of the U.S. Army for approximately 10 years has been investigating the American Psychological Association's 104-year role in the weaponization and militarization of psychology, its service to imperialism. Manisha works to expose the psychological warfare component of U.S.-led hybrid warfare <clears throat> with a special focus on the narratives used, <clears throat> to, narratives used to destabilize people's movements towards li liberation from imperial suppression in Latin America and the Caribbean. So, uh, Manisha, bring us into this. Talk to us about this, uh, about this summit, about the location it was at, why that location was chosen, and uh, your kind of overall impressions of it. Yeah, thank you. So um, this was my third time attending this particular conference um, or seminar, and uh, it's always hosted in Cuba, in Guantanamo, where the illegal base uh, known as Gitmo in the States continues to, to uh, illegally occupy the community um, and the, the, the sovereign nation of Cuba um, without the consent of the people. Um, and this is hosted, um, in the past, it's been hosted by a group called Wolf Paths. This time it was hosted by the Cuban Institute for Friendship with the Peoples alongside the World Peace Council. And people from all over the world attend um, to share information and updates on what is happening in their, in their respective locations with regard to military bases. And it's predominantly U.S. military bases, but other nations that are also occupied by other imperial um, states, they also discuss. For example, people from Okinawa come to talk about how the Japanese military and the U.S. military are working together um, to, to occupy their lands. And they're one of the most militarized places on the planet uh, with the highest number of U.S. military bases per square mile than any other place in the world. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, the nature of the, the seminar is to bring people together to help build and strengthen our, our solidarity with one another, encourage one another and help inform one another on, on what's happening, where our struggles are and how we're, how we're moving forward. And what, uh, the president presentation that you gave as part of the summit, what, uh, tell us about that. So. Um, people who may not be familiar with Puerto Rico, it's not a single island. It consists of multiple islands, one of those being Vieques. Um, and Culebra is the other one, which is 
right above me, I guess. In 1901, uh, not long after the U.S. invaded and took um, the islands of Puerto Rico from Spain, um, they began to militarize Culebra. Later on, in the 1940-1941 timeframe, they started to militarize the Vieques, which consisted of expropriating land, removing population, and creating um, basically a giant bombing rage. They took two-thirds of the island of Vieques. One end was for storage of ordnance. There are still bunkers there to this day. The other side was the bombing range, which became sort of the hub for all Lido practice. Um, so, so the first was Operation Portrix in the 50s. And this was the, the largest, for the time, the largest all but real war exercise ever to have been done. Um, so they have used Vieque um, for practice for all of U.S. military operations everywhere, including Iraq, including Vietnam. Um, and that means that every type of warfare um, that had been developed since 1941 and on had been used um, in Vieque, again, without the consent of the people. Um, Culebra successfully, the people resisted there and successfully ousted the Navy in 1975, which then added a higher concentration of, of this to, to Vieque in the years following that. And this is where my, my family is from in, in Puerto Rico. And so my father, my sister, a lot of my relatives lived with the bombings constantly, lived with the, the multiple types of violence that came from the U.S. military personnel during their off time in the community, which included sexual violence. Um, they lived, we still to this day live with contamination. So depleted uranium, Agent Orange, napalm. There's a long, long list of things, um, 62 years in, in total um, until the people's resistance uh, stopped that in 2003. 2001, I believe, was when the agreement was made to end, and then 2003 was when everything ended. Okay. So I went to, um, to talk about the ongoing struggle for justice for Vieques, as well as Culebra. Um, uh, Vieques currently has no hospital, uh, which means that all of the cancer rates and all of the other illnesses associated with the contamination due to the, the military use, um, it, it, people are dying constantly, children are dying constantly, we're born with birth defects, all, all these rare types of cancers, and we have to rely on a very flawed and intentionally flawed ferry system to get to and from the bigger islands of Puerto Rico to access healthcare because there has never been adequate healthcare on either of these two smaller islands. And then after the hurricanes, there has not been an effort to provide adequate healthcare, to rebuild the hospital, to, to help increase the quality of life and, and access to, to basically what is a human right. Um, for these people. And some of that comes from, for my people, I mean, and some of that comes from uh, the punishment for having kicked out the Navy. So in the speech I gave, it was basically to update folks on how we're doing and to remind people that the, the struggle has not ended. We still deal with open detonation of unexploded ordinance. We're still polluted. We're still sick. And we're still living with the, the results of this. And we still need solidarity. We still need support. We still need people amplifying the struggle and, and 
um, helping us to to not only hold the Puerto Rican government and U.S. government accountable and demand a proper response from them um, to value our lives, but also all the other countries in NATO that made up NATO during the years that that we were a rent arrangement. So to also demand that the other countries whose ordinance is still with us um, also participate in the cleanup and, you know, offer some sort of reparation, contribute to the building of an adequate facility. Um, there have been various legal uh, attempts to get the U.S. to, to um, it's called the Yekis Restoration and, and something else act to provide compensation to the people who who are continually harmed by this contamination and made sick. Um, so that's why I, I went in addition to, you know, giving my solidarity to others who are in similar struggle. I've been, uh, I've been studying the, uh, the U.S. Occupa occupation, early occupation in Fallujah recently and reading about the contamination that they have there and that one other um, uh, contaminant that was very high in the reports I saw for Viquez was, was lead, which is uh, a really horrible problem there. And I thought to myself, you know, in terms of, I mean, Fallujah was essentially as a battle used as a bombing range almost or an artillery range for how much fell onto it. And they're still trying to determine what's what, but in terms of overall, um, quantity of the contaminants that it was like, I think five to one or six to one that the average Vikinia's citizen has compared to what's supposed to be normal. Um, just absolutely unbelievable. And, and it should have a system set up very, I, I don't know about how, how good it works, but that like at Camp, Camp Lejeune, that the contamination that has happened there, that families can actually apply for compensation and medical care and all those things. And this exact same thing needs to happen with uh, Vikas too. Giovanni, jump in here, man. Yeah, I'm here listening and thinking about the contracts between Guantanamo and Vieque. And it's interesting that, that Vieque was, that Guantanamo is, was, was chose uh, to, for this uh, seminar for peace. Uh, Guantanamo being the first, uh, you know, permanent overseas uh, U.S. base, you know, overseas U.S. base in Guantanamo, which was uh, came as a result of the of the war with Spain in 1898, where both Puerto Rico and and uh, and Cuba became, you know, came under U.S. occupation, being Puerto Rico and and Cuba, the last remaining colonies, Spanish colonies in the Americas. Uh, and the contrast, because I've been to Guantanamo when I was a teen. When I was a teenager, uh, I did a layover in Guantanamo. Uh, we were flying from Virginia, from North of Virginia, into the Dominican Republic. And then we did a, uh, 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 my dad was in the military. We went on a space safe flight, a space available flight. So we laid over in, in, in Guantanamo. And we're there for about, for about an hour or two, you know, uh, not even an hour, not even an hour, less than an hour, because we didn't really get off the plane either. We just stayed inside the plane. They, just, they, they changed um, cargo and, and then we flew again. Like so I was a teen, but uh, but you know, I'm hearing the contracts between Guantanamo and, and Vieque because if you go to Guantanamo, I've never been there as as an adult, as a soldier, but but uh, I know people have been stationed there, 
It's like a little America there. You know, they have McDonald's, they have everything, you know, they have the bowling alley, they have nightclubs, you know, they have, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff. And, and I was there, I was in Cuba in 2015. I remember some of the, the, the delegation I went with, uh, peace delegation I went with, some of the people there were surprised to learn that Guantanamo is actually a part of Cuba. You know, in their mind, they thought Guantanamo is, uh, was an island. You know, it was an island outside of, you know, outside of Cuba. Uh, and most people associated with being a penal colony because of ever since the, the, you know, the so-called war on terror, you know, that's what you have, uh, they've been placing people there without, you know, any type of charges, without any type of, you know, just having people in prison there, uh, for, for years on in limbo, there's no, you know, with no, I said, no charges of any crimes, no, or nothing, right. They've just been there. Um, so people associate Guantanamo with, uh, with being a penal colony. Uh, but I remember before that in 2000 was 94, 95, I'm dating myself here. Um, Guantanamo was used as a place to put, put, uh, people migrating out of Haiti and Cuba around that time. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, migration coming out in raft, you know, trying, trying to get to Florida and whatnot. Um, so they were, the, the coast guard was picking up Haitian migrants and were rerouting them into this house in Olympic Guantanamo. They were there for a long time. And I was stationed with people that were there. Uh, a couple of facts about Guantanamo, uh, is that, you know, it was, became a permanent U.S. base in, in 1903, uh, and for several reasons, for several reasons, because one, it was a it was a fueling, uh, a coal, a coal place. That's what it started out. A coal fueling place for, for U.S. steamships. Uh, naval steamships, um, same way as, as, as Vieques, because Vieques, people think about Vieques, but it was Vieques and it's also a, a part, Vieques is an island, but it's also a part of coast of Puerto Rico, which uh, where the actual main base was at, and it's, it was in Ceiba, that's where the actual headquarters and the main base was in Ceiba, so it was, it was a big gun and rage and everything, but between Vieques, Ceiba, Culebra, and Guantanamo, the U.S. patrolled the, the, the Caribbean. You know, from rivals, from rivals from Europe, you know, mean, mainly Germany, et cetera. Right. And also during the same time, um, 1902, that's when the construction for Panama Canal started. So it was a way also to defend, uh, the Panama Canal from those, from those European rivals. Uh, it was a way to project and, you know, what time was a way to project the uh, power in the Caribbean, but what a lot of people don't understand is right. They have a permanent lease association with Cuba, meaning that they uh they went into this lease with the colonial government that was installed after the uh, spanish american war in cuba but after the uh and it was all groovy but after the uh, revolution 1959 uh, the cuban government you know wanted the the u.s government to leave to leave uh you know want the the autonomy or the sovereignty back from the u.s and wanted the uh the the you know, americans to leave and because of the permanent lease uh treaty or, or agreement they had with the previous governments, the United States have been left. So the U.S. pay, pay the Cuban girl about $4,000 a month. What's interesting about this is that, uh, that ever since 1959, the Cuban government has not cashed any single check of the, of the, uh, of those $4,000 that they get paid for, for the, for leasing the other territory, the land there. And the reason why is because they don't want to legitimize the U.S. presence there by cashing those checks, you know. Uh, but uh, are you able to show a picture of what Tynamo looks like, Henry? Oh, uh, yeah. Give me give me just a second. I got right. 
So, so yeah, so, so Manisha, I wanted you to ask you about that, you know, uh, and, and before we were talking, before we, we started the, uh, the, uh, the show, I was telling her that my first duty station was in Indianapolis uh, for Benjamin Harrison. We had a Cuban doctor there and he was counter-revolutionary, of course, and he left the Cuba, um, you know, um, shortly after or before the, the revolution. Uh, but he used to tell me stories about Guantanamo because as a young doctor, he used to work there. He used to work in Guantanamo area and he used to work in the brothels. He used to work in the brothels uh, where the soldiers were frequent. And he used to tell me that, that uh, he was proud of it too. <laughs> he used to tell me that, uh, that if a, a particular brothel, you know, soldiers started coming out sick, you know, from ST. call up on him, you know, to have checkups on the women and make sure the women were, were STD free and everything because they didn't want to get blacklisted. And that was, so something proud of that, something that he was proud about telling me about that for some reason. But I just wanted, I just wanted to, to get from you the, you know, being that you were in these two places in Guantanamo around the surrounding area, of course, you, um, you wasn't in a base, I, I don't think, but, you know, also seeing how, how the contrast with Vieque and Seba and, and Fajardo and how that is you know, compare, you know, compare the two. Yeah, there's so much in common. Um, and we didn't, we didn't, we, we got to go to the hotel where they had, had zoom, been able to zoom in and actually get the, the photos, those original photos that exposed the treatment of the detainees at Guantanamo. Um, this was before they moved the detainees. So we could actually see the guard towers and we could see a little bit inside from, from that position, but being, uh, in the surrounding community and seeing and listening to people who have lived there their whole lives, you know, and the generations that have lived there and hearing the stories, it's so similar to what our own people have gone through, uh, because it's basically the same thing, you know, you could, you, you you always have sexual violence with U.S. military presence. There's no getting around that fact. And you, you, you know, in addition to the other types of violence, and so you, you have still remnants of that. You have the the traumatic, um, like the lingering pain and suffering, you know, from people who experienced being raped and and experienced being sold. Um, and, and trafficked basically to satisfy the military rape culture. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, we're one in the same when it comes to that. And, and then the, the, the same mentality that allowed it to happen in the first place exists in Puerto Rico and exists in Cuba. Um, and it's really disappointing, but not surprising that there are people who are willing to sell their own people off like that. And, and be proud of it that exists over here too. And there's people here in, in Vieque that are so still so rageful that the, the Navy was kicked out and they use that as punishment. They use that as a retort for when we protest and demand better services. We demand basically that our human rights be respected um, and that we have access to healthcare and, and maritime transportation. Well, you shouldn't have kicked out the Navy. Life was so much better with the Navy. You had an economy with the Navy. You had a hospital with the Navy and you had all this with the Navy, but nobody thinks about what else we had with the Navy. 
And it's the same story that they use to justify the presence in Guantanamo. Oh, but they would have it so much better if they weren't against the Navy. But that's not really true. I saw that it, uh, that of a population of 8,000, 8,500 right in there for the, for Viquez, that there's only 30 people that have been hired to work on the cleanup efforts through the EPA and DOD. And I'm like 30 out of 8,000. Yeah. You, you guys are doing nothing for them, aren't you? I mean, it, and, um, but no, it's, it's, you know, if you're able to throw around a few jobs, people are, are wanted, but they don't see that. They don't see the, the blowback that comes from even the smallest U.S. military base. And, and of course, depending on the country that it's in and the people that you send there, but it, it, it always, there's always cast off. There's always, it, it, it's like the lead flying through the air from the wind and contaminating other areas. It just, it can't stay where it is. And we, our population has dwindled dramatically. Um, it's escalated after the hurricanes, but slowly, you know, uh, over time, because of the intentional neglect uh, and lack of investment in infrastructure and in human services, um, it's gone way, 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 way down. We used to have a lot more people there, but people leave. Uh, and and it's also, I think, important for people listening to think about, you know, if they have any doubt over any type of economic benefit that may come from the U.S. military presence and jobs and all of that stuff. What kind of jobs? What kind of jobs? My father worked on the base. He was a shoeshine boy. He was a bartender. He worked in the kitchen. You know? And then the rest of it is just to satisfy the needs of the people who who are lifted up and in place in a superior position over you in your own in your own country. Yeah, it's like, like that status. I see that a lot. Um, like that status um, uh, within the military. You know, you're. Uh, you know, you're. You know, you do an equivalent. I, I see this a lot where. Uh, you, you're doing equivalent and a civilian equivalent, equivalent job in the military, but the fact that you're wearing a uniform, doing the same thing that someone else is doing outside, you know, just puts you in a, in a higher echelon and helps you feel, you know, I guess it's, it's air superiority and, and people will, people will, you know, will put you on pedestal because of the fact you're using the, you know, you're, you're using the uniform, whereas, you know, the same job that you're doing that somebody else, that someone is doing it civilian, right? They don't get the same, <laughs> the same treatment. They don't get the same, uh, appreciation, same, you know, they're not putting the same, uh, pedestal, you know? And, you know, for, for people listening that maybe didn't serve, um, that. I know the three of us as veterans understand the really chintzy, nasty stuff that soldiers get made to do in terms of cleaning and details and mowing lawns on posts and all, all those different kind of things. But like you said, is it, it, it for some reason that if we're, we got that uniform on, we got that little thing on our collar. Hey, I work for uncle Sam. I'm, I'm, it doesn't matter that I just mow lawns or it doesn't matter that I'm just a cook because I've got this other thing. But that, and, and those mindsets get set into everybody, including people in the places where we end up making bases, like 
uh, Marisha, what you were uh, what you were just talking about. So I'm looking through my notes here, seeing if there's any other stuff we want to talk about. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Monisha, um, going back to that seminar, um, what other what other uh, delegation was represented there, and 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 if those other delegations that were there, you know, did they also have the same message? Do they also have came from places that also had military bases in in their in their countries? Yeah, yeah. So there was a there. Obviously, because of COVID, the 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 numbers were lower in, of in person attendance this time. Um, there were people from Palestine, Philippines, um, Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, and I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I can look it up too, real quick. Um, and for people who couldn't send a representative from their nation or group. Um, there were people like, for example, one of the representatives from Code Pink um, and also Veterans for Peace and Right, um, she spoke about the occupation in the Pacific beyond um, what the representative from the Philippines. Um, there was a person from Greece. There was a person from, uh, obviously, there were, there were folks there from Cuba who, who discussed the details of of the the impact of the illegal base there um and i think what what i'm sorry i just want to make sure that i'm fully answering your question did you also ask me what i got out of no and yeah yeah what you got out of it uh, i was wondering uh what what was, was their message their message you know and what areas what was it was their experience what what they were describing was a similar to, um, you know, what you experienced or what people in Vieques experienced, or, you know, the, the, um, you know, the narrative that you've, that you that you've collected in the in Vieques from people there, uh, was their narrative similar? Was there similarity? Was there symmetry, um, with theirs, you know, and, and this is very important because this is how, you know, you, you develop. Uh, you know, by having these seminars, by having, you know, Q's been, Q's been good at, you know, having these, these, these people's uh, seminars, these people's summits and whatnot, we used to get people, unheard people, people that mostly are not heard of that you don't see on, you know, you don't see on CNN or MSNBC or, you know, you, you see those, you know, you see those voices and, you know, come together and, and these, these settings, you know, and people share stories, share, um, People share, you know, experiences with each other, you know, and that's how you build this connected connectivity. This this global uh, kinship, you know, amongst people, you know, uh, that that the elite media or legacy media, you know, casting a shadow at or make it as relevant, you know. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, want to get from you, you know, the stories that you heard, you know, were you know were they. You know how similar were it to the stories that you've collected in Vieques? Yeah, and I just want to correct myself too. Um, I went back and looked at the list of of countries represented in person, and Nicaragua wasn't there, but we did try to make sure that the you know Nicaraguan people were not forgotten. Um, so Hawaii was also discussed, Colombia, um, Argentina, Brazil, Barbados, Mexico, Italy, the Philippines, Spain, and Greece. Um, and so uh, I think where a lot of focus was this time 
particularly given the current state we're in with the climate crisis, is the pollution. So that was a common thread throughout a lot of the the presentations was, especially with Hawaii, was about that. About, you know, with the escalation of, of, of climate change at the rate that it's going alongside the escalation of imperial aggression, uh, we're, we're only advancing the, the climate crisis. And so I think that's where a lot of the emphasis was. And this is very, very felt here in Vieque as well, you know, um, and Culebra and the rest of Puerto Rico and the rest of the Caribbean because of, you know, with, with the increase in storms, with the increase in, in extreme weather, um, all of these, all of this weaponry, all of the, the way that they try to supposedly contain the, the things that, that they use to take life um, in such a brutal manner, the bio-warfare, the chemical warfare, and so on, all of that is at risk of, of being, you know, <laughs> Uh, by weather, and and so that's a huge concern for people. Is not only is the the imperial aggression which we're used to the the ongoing problem, but now the the increased risks of harm to innocent people um, who do not have a say in whether or not the U.S. or any other you know similarly minded nation state has its it imposes its will on them and imposes its its weaponry on them in, in such a way as to endanger their lives forever for generations to come. Um, so that I think was the biggest um, emotion, you know, worry for people this time around. What's that? Because it creates an entirely new set of problems that we have to figure out how to survive while also trying to fight against imperial violence the guys and i love doing the podcast being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us but we can't do all the work we need you to share an episode of ours with somebody anyone who you think might be affected by it young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe. Yeah, please share those with them. We get asked often what people can do to help support the podcast. One very powerful way is to help us grow and reach more people is to leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes, which is the best place to leave a review iTunes does reach the most people these days. The next best place is Facebook. Go to our Fortress on a Hill Facebook page and look for the reviews tab. And finally, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping us for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 or more a month will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, 
Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Caron, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds. Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Korgoth, Rick Coffee, and the Status Quo Podcast. You are all the engine that helps us power the podcast. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me slash fortress on a hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. There's t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. And now let's get back to the podcast. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it. Anywhere you listen, we're waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a member at patreon.com. If you're not into doing a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I wanted to read something from from the, the Platt Amendment, which the Platt Amendment was um, something inserted into the Cuban Constitution right after the uh, the war with Spain, the the uh, U.S. Cuban and Spanish War. Because uh, I think I say U.S. Cuban and Spanish War because the the Cuban locals were were fighting the Spanish before the U.S. intervened. They were fighting the Spanish for several years, and they were actually in the verge of defeating the Spanish because because uh, the Spanish were Spanish Empire was crumbling at the time. Uh, they had instability back home. They were had a series of civil wars back home and political instability. Plus they had, uh, at the time, they had an uprising in the Philippines as well. They were fighting insurgency in the Philippines. They were fighting insurgency in, 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 in Cuba and they were fighting. And, you know, so they were, you know, they just lost most of the cost. So they were, they were a, an empire that was in his last throes, you know, that was just, you know, in, in, in life support, you know? Uh, so they were in the verge of being defeated in, in Cuba when the U.S. entered in, in 1898. Um, after the explosion of the maid, you know, which was the trigger, you know, remember the maid that was triggered to get the U.S. Uh, involved into the, into the, uh, into the war. Um, and then the war only lasted about three months. And then the Spanish, you know, the Spanish, uh, um, you know, were defeated and under the Paris Treaty, they signed off uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, the, Mar- the Mariana Islands, and, uh, um, and, and the Philippines, you know, they signed it off to the U.S., uh, and Hawaii, you mentioned Hawaii was, you know, <laughs> was also included in the package, you know, for good measure, you know, Hawaii wasn't, wasn't a Spanish colony, but it was a fueling, uh, coal fueling place for, for U.S. Navy going to trade with the, with the China, with, with China. Uh, so during the same time in 1898, you know, that's when they overthrew the, 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 uh, the Hawaiian queen. And then that's when Hawaii also became a territory of the United States, but in the, and the, the, the plan amendment, which was a constitution that was written for independent Cuba, which is nominal independent, uh, they sort the, the plan amendment was inserted and it's, it was a part of the plan amendment that justified, uh, what time is that, and I'm gonna read a, a part of it right here. 
if I can get it open, uh, that to enable the United States to maintain the independence of Cuba and to protect the people thereof, as well as for its defense, the government of Cuba will sell or lease to the United States lands necessary for Cuba, Poland, or naval stations at certain specific points to be agreed upon with the president of the United States. That was inserted into the plan amendment, which was part of the, that was inserted into the Cuban constitution. Therefore, uh, in their constitution, it gave permission to the United States, the right to, to have soldiers there, occupy land there. Uh, and this was in, and only the United States has the right to leave if it wants to. Not the Cuban government, no one, only the United States has the right to leave if it wants to. Uh, but this was turned over its head in, in the, with the Cuban revolution, because the Cuban revolution tore up that constitution and they rewrote a new constitution the revolution constitution. Uh, so I just want to put out there, cause you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, 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 uh Hawaii and I just want to put that little bit of history because, uh, people tend to make all the connections, you know, with, with these type of things, you know, why do you have bases in Guantanamo? There's this false. This is false idea that we're there for the benefit of the people there. So I was just watching, I was watching the fight. I'm a huge boxing fan. I was watching the fight the other day in the way they announced the main fight. Uh, this is to all the millions of people and all the service members watching us and, and around the world, you know, that's, that's the announcement, you know, so it's, it's, it's a pride, you know, that you have service members around the world, but no one really stops and asks themselves why you have so many people around the world, <laughs> you know, uh, I forgot where I was going with this comment, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, what is your reflection on that? You know, Cuba obviously played a huge impact in the 20th century. You know, they became, you know, fully independent in 1959 with the overthrow, not only the overthrow of the government of Batista, but also the, they overthrew, uh, the sugarcane company, the American sugarcane companies that were operating in, 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 uh, in Cuba, many dominoes and all that, right? Uh, they also overthrew the, the mafia that was operating Havana that had Havana control. So they overthrew all that and they rid themselves off of, uh, us colonial control and they became an uh, independent nation. They've been paying for it ever since. <laughs> You're just like in, just like in, 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 in Vieca, you know, they've been sanctioned ever since, you know, ever since that, that period. Uh, but they played a huge role despite the fact that they played a huge role in, in the 20th century, you know, and they support a lot of national liberation movements around the world. They supported South Africa. They defeated the South African uh, military twice in, in, in the 1980s. Uh, they supported uh, the newly independent uh, country of Angola from, from Portuguese uh, colonialism. And then, you know, um, they supported Grenada, you know, when they became free from the UK. Um, which sparked the, the, the war against Grenada in 83. Uh, what is, you know, what do you think is your role today in the 21st, 21st century? Obviously they don't have, you know, we're not supposedly in the cold war. They don't have that revolutionary rhetoric or, you know, that imposing presence that they had back in the 20th century. Uh, what do you think is your role today? I think I can only speak for myself and, and, uh, what I draw from the the times I've been able to go and learn um, and listen to people and and really counter the the U.S. Cold War narratives that per, you know are continually perpetuated today within my own mind 
by listening and seeing for myself and asking tough questions while I'm there. Um, and so I, I, what really gives me a lot of hope and inspiration in the 21st century is that Cuba continues to be in revolution. You know, they're, they're really demonstrating how it's a process and that the outcome is ongoing. Um, for example, just everything that you listed, you know, there were some very abrupt pieces of the process that had to take place in order to create the space for the rest of the process to continue and to be able to continue in that while being sanctioned, while ha having the, the murderous economic warfare that's going on, while having the psychological warfare that's going on, but then to continue to... Um, do do like a cultural revolution, like right now, the changes to the family code that are going on, the way that in recent years, there was an effort to change the constitution yet again and evolve um, by learning from the missteps and from, you know, a, a lot of people will, including myself earlier on before I, I you know, made an effort to learn more, um, the the homophobia and a lot of the cultural things that are present in all of the places that were colonized by the Spanish that's present in all of our cultures it's present here in Puerto Rico it's present in the United States all of these things especially for the context of the time in which the revolution began these were commonalities among a lot of cultures but the narrative will have people believe that this is the revolution creating homophobia um and the way that in that particular thing, uh, including also gender violence against women and having the revolution within the revolution, and the way that now, even, even in Cuban culture, which again comes from Spanish colonial culture with African culture and Taino culture mixed in, um, there are people who are resistant to change and evolution and they may be counter-revolutionary or they may not necessarily align fully with, you know, um, the, the, the Cuban government. But there is democracy happening and it's happening literally from the bottom up. And so that these changes are happening slowly, but they're happening. And what they're doing, for example, when I was there and I was watching some of the TV, they're doing, they have educational programs on, on the various gender identities and on why it's important for people to understand what this means and that we don't, we're not supposed to be criminalizing this. We're not supposed to be having family violence, you know? So there is an effort to make these changes from the ground up. So then that's reflected in policy. And that's how they were able to advance these changes in the family code from the ground up through educational campaigns. Um, and I, I think that what that exemplifies for me is how necessary it is to simultaneously be firm in your resistance to imperialism and, and basically colonization and protect um, the, the advances that have been made over time um, and be flexible enough to listen to the needs of the people and to grow and to recognize where there have been um, poorly informed choices or where the culture itself has been at fault for causing harm. Um, so I think that that's really fantastic um, for people in other places who are also struck, for example, here in Puerto Rico, where we're still struggling to be free, um, that 
but we have the same problems. We have the the crisis of we actually have more problems here with femicide, more problems here with violence, um, with gender based violence and homophobia and transphobia than what people can see in in Cuba. And that's not to say that it doesn't exist, but what we don't have here is the ability in, in um, control over over our own country in such a way that we can advance these changes culturally that we need to see so that human rights can be respected. So what I see from the Cuban revolution now in the 21st century is um, a real strong example of how the evolutionary process of revolution can take place culturally underneath all of the other pressures that they have going on. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> I, um, I wanted to, to go back to something we kind of, we, we talked about it here in bits and pieces, but I'd like to take a moment and really dig into it. Um, that let's, I guess for lack of a better way to say it, the psychological contamination that comes from living in proximity to a military base, a bombing range, an air force range, um, noise pollution, light pollution. Um, the place that really sticks in my mind right now is Okinawa with their, where the air bases is situated and how that, that flies over schools and all kinds of other things. Um, you seem like someone who would be really apt to dissect that, to talk about that more, please, uh, talk us through, so, uh, your, uh, your impressions of the psychological effects of living near military bases and also um, what you talked about earlier about uh, sexual trauma, sexual assault as well. Yeah. So uh, basically a lot of what we go through as veterans with PTS is what the communities go through. Um, and so, for example, my dad would tell me stories of how, you know, it would feel being woken up by the sound of the bombings and that sometimes like the stray bullets would come into, into the houses and, and things like that. And a lot of the elders in the community, and, and we don't have to go back that far really, because it just stopped in 2003. Sure. So sure. here, you know, the way that people experience that, but then what lingers now is exactly the same symptoms that a lot of us have, you know, and there's still drug, like gun violence and stuff from, from drug trafficking that occurs here. Um, there's massacres, you know, there's, there's people dying constantly, which is also a product of, of U.S. interventionism. But it's, um, there's a lot of hypervigilance. There's a lot of like hyperreactivity to sound. There's a lot of, um, I hate the word, the phrase mental illness. But I'll say dis-ease in a way that people cannot feel at ease. There's, they've, they've lost peace of mind. Um, so there's hypertension, you know, there's, there's, you know, the, because the physical and the mental and the emotional, they're all connected and related. Um, so it's terrifying. A lot of people are, are um, and I'm, I'm thinking of some of my own family members, um, are easily startled you know uh and 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 just yeah the pts that that we experience is also being experienced in community and then you also have the the effects of um 
the sexual violence and that's not as discussed um as openly um there's a lot of victim blaming and shaming still that takes place there's a lot of the it's just a, a lack of compassion understanding and empathy uh, but that again comes from the machismo and all that in our culture but it also comes from I mean, that's general too across cultures um, when it comes to sexual violence. But yeah, I would say that the the psychological impacts too of the environmental contamination of being under occupation, um, I would relate that a lot to what you might hear people from Palestine express about you know their stress, their emotions, their anger, their rage, their their fear. Um, and depression. We have a lot of suicides. The hopelessness that comes from it, you know, like to to and, and apathy, a lot of apathy, a lot of um, um, fatalism. You know, that that feeling of nothing's going to change, so why bother? This is just how it is. Uh, I listen. I'm on the youth as well. Mm-hmm. I was going to say for, for any, for any teenager or newly married couple or whatever, the idea that you're going to provide your kids or, or nieces and nephews with any kind of peace of mind, any kind of healthy life. Um, yeah, that must be horrifying. I, I, I go back to what I said earlier about Fallujah that, that we, we have this idea, uh, Americans and somewhat among the anti-war movement that if you want to go and find what the military has really done, you have to go to Afghanistan. You have to go to Iraq. You have to go to Syria. It's not that far away. It's right here. It's right next door. It's at the southern border. It's in Cuba. It's in Puerto Rico. It, you know, it, we, but, but we, we convince ourselves that the, um, the idea of war and the, our separation from it is much bigger than it is. And people need to be willing to understand that. But I, I hear what you're saying in terms of like, you know, American culture. We still have very little empathy for sexual assault uh, survivors. We have uh, we we don't want to connect it to the hyper masculinity of our culture in any in any meaningful way, or we're happy to blame it on other cultures, you know, d- depending on what the situation is. But um, just to have all of that, you know, it's a horrifying, horrifying thing. I'm I'm out, I'm out of words to say about it. I would add too that um, people can in, in, inside they can just even look at the original peoples that are in the concentration camps called reservations and see the same thing. But what that does is then that makes people who who identify as U.S. citizens um, have to reflect on colonialism and their own role in that. You know, even if we weren't the ones who initiated the process. We are st- is the process is ongoing and it has created the space that we call home and it's there in front of our faces and there are still people being harmed by it. So then it it's like a creates a, a like almost an identity crisis, but also you know like a, a crisis in a person's conscience about um, just like that's just like our, our moral injury that we experience once we become conscious and we actually allow ourselves to look at what it was we were involved in, what it was we were even even unwittingly, but still at times consensually participating in, thinking we were doing the right thing. 
Yeah. That's one thing that people, I, I, I hope that as time goes on, it becomes easier. But when I explained to someone that, that as a veteran, they were a cog in a machine and that they did not or could not fully comprehend exactly what machine they were supporting, couldn't go back to it and say, I, I knew that I was connected to this and connected to that. And I know for me that I am always on a journey of um, redoing my history redoing the history that has been been taught to me to go back to things that have been um, that as Americans, we don't look too closely at because it gets too ugly and people don't have to, they don't have to accept personal responsibility for what their ancestors did, but they have to understand how the system was perpetuated and how it still exists today. And that things are not as simple as we're going to end racism. We're going, you know, that the, the civil rights movement did not end racism. It certainly changed a lot of people's lives, but again, the, the, the project is ongoing. All of them are ongoing and all of them with these different systems. And, um, I joked with the guest a while ago that there are times when I'm, I'm reading about a topic and I read about something that I have no idea about, and I have to take an amount of time, hours or days to learn enough of that, to go back and continue to understand the context of what I was going through. And that's the process that everybody has to do. Everybody, anybody who, who wants to understand how foreign policy really affects our lives, they have to be willing to go through that, that, and to be honest about how it makes them feel, you know, to understand, you know, about what, what that goes through. It's like, this is really messed up and shameful. It's like, yeah, let's do something about it. You know, that don't, don't let, don't let shame or upset be the last thing that you do. Don't let watching that one documentary or whatever it is be the last step you take in trying to de-imperialize yourself, if we want to call it that. Well, um, Giovanni, you want to jump in, man? Yeah, I mean, it's very, you know, good, you know, good, good points both of you guys made. Um, how do we, how do we decolonialize our mind? How do we de-imperialize ourselves? And it's funny because, um, you know, in the military, Puerto Ricans have a high representation in the military, um, amongst, amongst, uh, the highest, you know, representation per capita. I mean, there's the population of Puerto Ricans about, I think about 3.5 million people but per capita has, you know, one of the highest, I think it's, I think, uh, Armenians and, 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 uh, um, and native Americans, right. Or native people, uh, surpass, surpass Puerto Ricans and, 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 uh, and representation in the, in the military, right? And you gotta ask yourself why, right? You got these three, you got these three um, cultures, these three people, right? You know, Native American, you know, women, people from Guam, Guamanians, and Puerto Ricans, why they have such a high presence in the United States military, you know, what's, what's being offered, you know, what's, what's out there, you know, what's, what's the, you know, what's the lingering, what's the story behind it? You know, it's not just that, you know, uh, these people, you know, they just, you know, were created from nothing to join the military. You know, there's just something behind it, you know, and, it's, and I challenge people to, to, to look, you know, what's behind it, you know, what, what's, what's happening in those communities that's, that's driving people to join the military, you know, in such high numbers, you know, uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, I train a lot of soldiers, I've trained soldiers and, uh, uh, and, and I make comparisons between, you know, the Puerto Rican soldiers that are, that have come across, you know, uh, as a trainer, as a, as a military trainer, where, you know, when I train soldiers and whatnot, you know, I compare with the Puerto Ricans that live, that grew up here in the United States, 
and the Puerto Ricans that came from Puerto Rico. A lot of the, a lot of the Puerto Ricans that most of the Puerto Ricans that grew up in the United States, uh, born and raised in the United States, right? Most of them were, are, you know, completed high school, you know, they joined the military right after high school, et cetera, you know, or, or whatnot. But a lot of these Puerto Ricans that come from Puerto Rico, right? Many of them, you know, they have degrees, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they have, you know, they have degrees, they have four-year colleges, degrees at one time, you know, and you, and you ask yourself why, you know, why you have a degree and everything, why you joined the military. So you gotta ask yourself why, you know, Puerto Rico has been a position, a colony in the United States for a hundred, you know, in 20 years now, you know, what's, you know, what's the, what has been, what has that shown, you know, what, you know, what, you know, what in the ground, how, what was, how is that shown in the ground? You know, you've been a part of the United States and the Pentagon said for 120 years, right? What have you given to offer other than the military? You know, so those type of questions that, 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 you know, I often ask, ask myself, you know, um, you know, any last thoughts on that, Manisha? If not, you know, uh, yeah, you know, tell us where we can find your work and what are you doing next and whatnot. Yeah, no, you, you really, um, pinpointed something. I think that people who are listening, I invite them to think more deeply about, you know, what is it about being colonized that drives that, that create, what are the conditions of colonialism that make it easy to recruit us, you know? And then how do those conditions of, of us as colonized people relate to the conditions of, of, of the poor people in the United States that also make them easy to recruit, um, you know, from all of the different, um, racialized hierarchies and gender hierarchies and all of that stuff. But, but yeah, even as, as, um, as colonized people, which I mean, basically we all are, um, we've got to, got to, got to, I feel like work harder to, to undo that training that we've been given and, and, and wrestle with the emotions of, of that, that go with that, you know, as we become more conscious, um, uh, poco a poco, you know, little by little when the consciousness comes and then we have the emotions that go with it. And I really like Henry, what you said that, you know, we can't let shame be the last thing we can't let, you know, just watching a documentary be the thing we have got to, got to, got to do tangible work to undo these systems and, and abolish the very things that are creating these conditions. Um, and I feel like a lot of people do get stuck, um, at the shame part. Um, and of course, you know, that's also, I feel in part by design, because uh, when you look at the poor quality, truly of mental health services that are available to people, you know, there's not a whole lot of um, room for us to move beyond shame in a healthy way, not in an individualistic, self-centered well, I'm going to let myself off the hook so I don't have to feel bad way, but in a way that actually equips us to create real, actual change to these systems and abolish these systems um, that created the problem to begin with. But anyway, I'm going to get off that tangent because um, I'll just go on and on. Um, what I'm working on now, being here in the whole land in Puerto Rico, I, I actually... Um, 
had to leave VIK for my own health reasons to help me recover from COVID, you know, to go and access healthcare and support my recovery. But then also to, um, I kind of got deployed <laughs> over here to um, set up a, like a medical solidarity support area for people who are coming from Vieques and Culebra to access healthcare. So I have, I used my veterans benefits to, to get a house in Ceiba, uh, which is right near the ferry port. Um, it's so that as well as a minivan so that I can pick people up from the, from the port and they can come stay here for free, um, for as long as they need to, to access appointments. Um, if they have to come here to care for loved ones, um, or, you know, have to have a surgery and need some recovery time before getting back on the boat, um, you name it, if they get abandoned by the ferry. So the, the project is slowly being built now. I've, the need has been so great that I've already needed to receive people. Um, one person was sleeping in their car while their parent was in critical condition. Um, you know, like I'll do food deliveries for people. It, it's, it's whatever the need is. Um, and I've been doing it all through my disability check <laughs> each month. Um, got a fundraiser, um, going because there needs to be some renovations to make it, you know, yeah, uh, uh, wheelchair accessible, um, get furniture, you know, redo the kitchen, get a, a water heater, you know, get all the things in place for it to be a healthy, like sanitary, uh, place. And then from there build out more programming, um, and eventually for myself to move on, I, I'm, I'm living in the house right now while it's being fixed up, but ideally the goal is, um, to build up enough, uh, I guess, material support to where, uh, the house gets paid off and is no longer in my name, but instead belongs to the community. Um, and is used strictly for medical solidarity for Biakas and Culebra. And then I'll move the other aspects of the project to a different location, including myself. So that's what I'm doing. That sounds incredible. I, I, I <laughs> I'm uplifted to hear, hear this, this, what you're working on and, and it's, uh, um, and that is the, that is the things that we have to do that we, we can't collectivize all our problems and only put the, uh, put the solution only on the individuals that if this is, if these are the things that people have to carry, we have to help them unburden themselves through the community in the same way. So I applaud you. That's, that's just amazing. Um, so thank you so much for, uh, taking the time to come and talk with us. Um, Monish Rios. Misha, can you, yeah, I was going to say that. Can you share the, uh, you know, uh, can you share your fundraiser? Um, can you fundraising also, if there, if, are you already on any social media who can follow your, your work or uh, what you do? Yeah, thanks. So I, I just, um, right now that I have a bit.ly link for the fundraiser, I'm using donor box for it, but the, the project is called Centro Solidario. In English, that's Solidarity Center, but the, so it's B-I-T dot L-O-Y forward slash C-E-N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, R-O-S as in Sam, P as in Paul, R, Central S-P-R. So that's where folks can um, see the current fundraiser. Um, and 
I do have some social media stuff, but to be honest with you, I I'm I don't have the capacity to to run it all well. So I do try to update on Twitter, um, which is at Centro underscore SPR, I believe. Um, it's I'm also on Facebook with the project, and I have an Instagram that I don't use because I don't know how to use Instagram. But um, yeah, hopefully, you know, when I get more volunteers and and a, a bigger team, um, I'll be able to do more on social media. Sounds great. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Monisha, for your uh, for your time. And uh hope to talk to you again soon. Maybe we can get uh in a while we can get an update on the uh update on the project and see uh, how things are going along. Thank you again for for having me and, and spotlighting VIK. Yeah, of thank course. you for what you're doing, you know, keep at it. Keep doing oh yeah. Oh you yeah. You're an inspiration. Yeah. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time.